Constitution. Recorded live. Welcome to Camp Constitution Radio with your host, Hal Shirtliff. This show is heard on WBCQ The Planet every Monday night at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It's also heard on ipmnation.org, which is an online uh, source based out of Concord, New Hampshire. WBCQ is in Montes, a broadcast out of Monticello, Maine, in Arista County. And we encourage you to uh, share the information about this great station, WBCQ. Um, you can do your own, have your own radio show with um, with a relatively inexpensively, and the, the, the show is heard all over the world. Uh, we also take copies of the show uh, the MP, in the MP3 uh, format and convert it to YouTube video, and you can uh, so you can uh, listen to our radio show on YouTube usually uh, within a week or so of the airing of this show. Um, thank you for the very competent uh, engineer Robert, who is very faithful about getting the MP3s to me uh, in a very quick, uh, very quickly. Uh, this show is brought to you by Camp Constitution which, among other things, runs a week-long, a week-and-a-day-long family camp. Next year's camp will be held from July 2nd to the 9th in the beautiful Toa Nippi Krishna Retreat Center in Ringe, New Hampshire. We've already got Chris Ann Hall confirmed to be a speaker, Larry Pratt of Gun Owners of America. And since it falls on July 4th, we're going to have some special uh, Activities. We are hoping to take a visit to the Uncle Sam House, this home of Uncle Sam Wilson, who was the motivation behind the Uncle Sam that we see with the beard and the white beard and the red, white, and blue outfit. An incredible story that you can learn about from our website. You go to our YouTube channel, put in Uncle Sam Museum and, or Uncle Sam House, and you'll see some great information about um, Uncle Sam. Well, we do have a scheduled guest. He's not on yet. Hopefully he'll come on. That would be Mitchell Shaw, who's written a few articles. Uh, he actually is a contributing writer to the New American Magazine, but he had a couple of articles recently on the subject of Black Lives Matter, and I wanted to talk to him about that. And others. I was hoping to get Reverend Kraft on, too. Uh, we had a very interesting week last week. Um, now, some of you know Reverend Kraft's been a guest. He's more like a co-host than a guest, but he's a dear friend, and he's one of our instructors at Camp Constitution. And a few weeks ago, now we're talking uh, with early August, late August, he got wind of the information about um, Reverend uh, about Governor LePage of Maine. And LePage has been under under fire lately with some of the comments he made. He got upset. He was uh, making reference to the drug trafficking in the state of Maine. And Maine is, like many all over the country, has really been hit hard by the heroin uh, overdose opioid epidemic, as they call it. And he does have a very sound approach to it. He's very much against methadone. He's shut down a couple of the labs. Not shut down as in I'm coming in and shut you down, but simply with, with through the funds for the uh, for the opioid uh, clinics, the uh, methadone clinics, and two of the clinics of the numbers that I have in Maine, I'm not sure how many there are, they moved out. Keep in mind that this methadone is big business. So the, the getting people hooked and keeping them hooked is in the best interest of big pharma. Uh, methadone is nothing more than a synthetic version of the heroin. Um, and it's something that some of these these people suffering from drug addiction can stay on for for years, and 
it's big money for the the big farmer and big government. They just love it. In fact, as a, our one of our instructors and a friend of mine, Doctor Kishore, who's an expert on the subject, I've learned a whole lot from him. But he explained to me that that prior uh, back a hundred plus years ago, early part of the early 1900s, late 1800s, there was an epidemic of drug addiction, and it was uh, laudlin and um, other other um, opioids. And they used, heroin was used as a means to get you off the other addictive drugs. And, and that, of course, was in its pure form. And they discovered uh, how dangerously addictive heroin was. So it was outlawed in, I think, 1915 or so. And back, uh, anyway, and um, it, methadone was used as a, so here was the drug heroin that was used initially to cure drug addiction. That caused addiction in its own right. And then um, it wasn't until the late 60s under the Nixon administration did, was there a problem with the, um, the heroin. They had another heroin epidemic, uh, and that resulted in the use of methadone to be uh, as the legitimate prescribed um, drug. Now, methadone was invented by the Germans. It was used in World War II by the Nazis at the end of World War II. Uh, an American uh, U.S. government got the patent to it and sold it. can't remember the name of the drug company that manufactures it. For They bought the patent for a dollar. And they realized it was a highly addictive drug. And it wasn't used very much. It wasn't until uh, the late 50s. They had a certain so many milligrams, uh, and you, you would take it so many per day. They had what they call a, a biscuit, a methadone biscuit. And you would break off a little piece, take it, and it, it, it took the pain off, but it was addictive. And according to Dr. Kishore, and this can be verified, but John Kennedy was the first, one of the first to use it in the United States because of his back pain, and he became an addict or addicted to the drug. So, uh, so that's why, uh, and what's happening at these clinics, they used to give you a dose in the morning, and you take the other dose home with you. Well, what's happening is some... Uh, some of the addicts were uh, going home and selling the, the methadone to buy the heroin, so it wasn't working out for them. So today, you have to get all the doses right in, that, in the morning. Usually, it's early in the morning. And as Dr. Kishore said, it's like having breakfast, lunch, and dinner at once. So it's tough where it's off by a certain time in the early to mid-afternoon, and then you're back needing a fix again. So there's a lot of problems with it. And LePage also wants to have uh, interdiction and border, some kind of control over who's coming in. Uh, and he said in a meeting that we had with him last April, uh, he said, you've got a lot of coastline, and it's um, almost impossible. He said some of the people in the fishing business, a small, tiny percentage, no doubt, uh, supplement their income by uh, bringing drugs into Maine. So, um, And he got into a lot of hot water because he had made a reference to the number of blacks and Hispanics that are... Uh, involved in the drug trade, and he said a disproportionate number, which actually, unfortunately, is true. And that, anyway, a, a state rep from the Portland area, a very liberal state rep, uh, called him a racist because he made made that comment. And Governor LePage, LePage got very upset about it and left a message on this man's uh, uh, telephone, voice message, and I won't repeat what he said, but it was quite vulgar. Uh, he did apologize about this, however, and so he's, he's been the – the left does not like him at all. They've been after him since day one, 
and he's been a governor. He's this is his second term, so he's got about two years left to his his term, and they want him to resign and so forth. So anyway, Reverend Kraft uh, heard about this while he was on his on on his computer. Now Reverend Kraft, as he explained, had been a drug addict. Now we're talking 40 years ago. We're not talking the recent. And he got off it in the late 20s. Uh, he was in his late 20s, or early 30s when he got off it. He uh, was able to go through Teen Challenge, which is a Christian-based uh, entity. And Teen Challenge, its name sounds like teenagers, but actually it's for all ages. And he turned his life around, become, became a committed Christian, and eventually a pastor, went to Harvard Divinity School. So he wrote him a letter. It was a very brief letter in support of, you know, just say, hey, I got your back. I'm a black conservative Christian leader, and so forth. Well, I, when I saw the letter, I wrote a little article about it on the blog, on the Camp Constitution blog and posted the letter and did a news release to send that that story to newspapers in Maine, uh, a number of them. Uh, and the only one that covered the story was the Fort Fairfield Journal, which is owned by a friendly friend of mine up in northern Maine. It's just a, a small paper, but he did a little interview with Reverend Kraft and did a nice story. Greatly appreciate that. In fact, he also covered my presentation up there in Presque Isle on the United Nations, why we need to get out. It came out in the same edition. So uh, I had a, a sort of run an errand for a friend in, in Maine from Boston. I drove up to uh, the state capitol, had to, had to deliver some things, and I suggested to Reverend Kraft, why not come up? We'll do a press conference, and uh, you know, uh, you know, we'll see what we can do. So we, Reverend Kraft was willing to do that. We got him on on an Amtrak train, picked him up here in Boston, and drove up. And Wednesday, this was uh, just a few days ago, we held a uh, press. Uh, uh, I guess the day before, I should say, the day before the press conference, which was a Wednesday, Tuesday, I asked a friend of mine if, if she could hand deliver the news release, print it out and put it on the desk of the reporters right at the state capitol. Now, we've had press conferences in the past when I was with, with another organization, and very seldom in Maine especially would they be coming out. Uh, <coughs> uh, but they came, <coughs> excuse me, they came out this time, and I tell you, we uh, a reporter from this, the Portland Press-Herald, which is a very liberal newspaper, it's probably as bad, uh, if not worse, than the Boston Globe or the Washington Post, a reporter from the uh, uh, Scott Thistle called me. I uh, got the news release. He had just got it within a few minutes. And he gave me a short interview, asked me some questions. And Reverend Kraft was en route. He was not available. He was on a train, and his reception was pretty bad. So he didn't interview Reverend Kraft. All right. And that interview was carried in some the next morning. A number of the daily papers had a little story about it but also online. So we realized we'd probably have a few media people there, a few, a little more than normal. Well, we get there, we had actually four or five uh, television stations, New England Cable News, Channel 6, Fox 23, and Channel 13. And I think there was another one. I'm not sure what it was. Um, and then we had some print media there and some friends and allies and a few state reps that we think came in. And Reverend Kraft did a phenomenal job, and he wasn't trying to apologize for, for LePage's comments. He said he's, he's, he's asked for forgiveness. Let's get over it. Let's get, and he really, the big issue is the drug addiction. Let's deal with the opioid issue and stop trying to go after make it a, make it a racial issue. And I'm of the opinion 
that the people who despise LePage are more interested in taking him down than they are dealing with the drug issue. And how does the government and their allies in the pharmacy business, the medical mafia, deal with it? More money, more money, more money, more addiction, more money. They have no solution. And, in fact, the using the methadone and very expensive treatments, people go to these halfway houses, these clinics, and th- this does not... Uh, the, their success rate is 5 to 10% sober. And so a success rate would be sober for more a year or more. And it just isn't working, and it's costing, it's costing the lives of some of these folks. It's costing the taxpayer thousands, millions of dollars, billions of dollars, if you look at all over the country. And it's sad that they reject, just like they reject, the medical establishment rejects is what referred to as alternative treatments for things like cancer, they certainly reject the Massachusetts model developed by Dr. Kishore. So just I, I guess our guest uh, who wrote the articles on Black Lives Matter, just he uh, isn't able to call in for some reason. We'll probably pick it up at some other point. But I wanted to uh, mention this, really a couple of good articles that uh, Mitch Shaw wrote. It was in the September 19, 2016 issue of the New American Magazine. And I'd, rec- I'd recommend that you um, you can go online to thenewamerican.org or .com. One of the articles was Making Black Lives Matter, and the second one was, let's see, A War of Lies. But the article, he actually made reference to a, a policeman by the name of, let's see, if we can find it here. He mentioned a policeman from Atlanta. He actually did a good job of interviewing him. And here it is. Uh, Officer Jay Stalian, S-T-A-L-I-E-N. I I should interview him. He's out of Atlanta. And a young man, he's been on the force for, I don't know, so many years. Uh, It looks like he can handle himself, too. Um, Officer Jay Stalian is one of the many black police officers who daily see evidence that black lives do not matter to Black Lives Matter. In a viral Facebook post, he wrote, only the lives that make the national news matter to them. Only the lives that are taken at the hands of cops or white people matter. So uh, there's some interesting statistics here. I'm not going to be... Oh, here it is. Okay, here is... um, Michael Hickford wrote for the website of Alan West. On average... 4,472 black men were killed by other black men annually between January 1st, 2009 and December 31st, 2012, according to the FBI's supplemental homicide reports. Using FBI and CDC statistics, Professor Johnson calculates that 112 black men on average suffered both justified and unjustified police-involved deaths annually during this period. So, um, so over 40, almost 4,500 blacks are killed annually by other black men. And that doesn't seem to be an issue, but uh, only 112. Now, some of these may have been unjustified. In some cases, the policemen that did the killing were also black. So uh, this Black Lives Matter is really a, you can say it's a quasi-terrorist group that they, they're interested in causing riots. And you see all these white liberals jumping on board. You see these Unitarian churches with the Black Lives Matter banner, with their uh, rainbow rainbow uh, flag, and with their little, we support Muslims. 
I mean, everything anti, I'm not suggesting, we support Muslims. Yes, here they are, they should be calling Muslims to repentance that they've, they've embraced a false, a false god. Instead, they're, they're in unity. The Muslims don't support homosexuality, but these Unitarian churches and these liberal, almost all Episcopal churches, by the way, are liberal, uh, and some of these so-called mainline Christian denominations with their rainbow flag and their dining churches, their small congregations, if it wasn't for the 501c3 status they enjoy, the state churches that they are, they'd, be, uh, they'd all be out of business, and that would be a good thing. So um, anyway, I, I do encourage you to see this article, uh, these two articles. It may be on the online version as well. And anyway, Reverend Kraft, uh, to get back with Reverend Kraft, Reverend Kraft, of course, is very much against these these uh, Black Lives Matter people. Of course, all lives matter. And if Black Lives Matter, this organization, was really interested in building, um, they would be addressing these problems in the city. And the same thing with the drug addiction. That Yes, a disproportionate number of black and Hispanics do engage in the drug trade for different reasons. Uh, some of them see there's no other way to go. You're from a broken family. And as our late friend Sam Blumenthal pointed out, you, uh, there's, a black, there's a black underclass that has been created by the left. Uh, these, these young black people, like the, the, the welfare state has encouraged single-family households. Now, you still have to put responsibility on the individual. It doesn't let them off the hook. You just can't say, oh, the white man did it. It was the whitey, whitey's fault. Uh, in some cases, it may be, especially this welfare, this welfare state that they created. But the people are responsible for their own actions. So you create this welfare state that encourages single-parent homes, uh, unmarried women having children, and the, the federal government, the state government, city governments will give you subsidized housing. They'll give you free medical, free dental, uh, fuel assistance, uh, unemployment insurance, all kinds of benefits, food stamps. Uh, all kinds of things that person, you know, have, holding a full-time job won't have. So you're discouraging them. Or Section 8 housing to subsidized housing um, paid by the taxpayers. In some cases, in a housing projects, you see, these are the plant. These are the new plantations. These uh, liberals that put uh, white liberals that encourage these the, these policies, and they all will vote. Almost all of them will vote for the Democrat uh, plantation masters. And you get people like Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton and other of these. Uh, you get a lot of these at the local level. Usually it's the, a local bishop of a, of a big church. They might talk about the Bible and the church, but their policies are far left. They embrace the Hillary Clintons. The world. These are the overseers, the black overseers of these plantations, this Democrat liberal plantation. And it, it's quite an operation. The, the money flows in from the federal government, and even some of these. Yeah, it's interesting. I was doing a research uh, on ACORN, uh, A-C-O-R, and the now defunct uh, Action Committee. I can't remember what it stands for, but it was a left-wing group. They got 10% of their budget from the federal government. Can you imagine if the federal government gave us uh, give Camp Constitution? Well, we would reject it, obviously. But I mean, why are they? And by the way, the federal government has been funding left-wing groups for quite a long time. Uh, it started in under the Johnson administration, the Office of Economic Opportunity, and it's and I don't know if that that has been that name has changed to something else. But so they'll spend 
millions of dollars. They were giving the black Muslims contracts to do security at housing projects. I mean, they, the federal government is in funding this. When they're not funding our enemies, external enemies, they're funding our enemies locally, too. Um, and that's sort of been an ongoing thing. So I do encourage you to get a hold of uh, this magazine, uh, this issue, September 19, 2016. There's also a good, there's a, uh, a, a, a sheriff, Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark. He's, he's been in the news a lot. Uh, he's another black man, uh, a conservative with a Christian background. He says that black people are victims of the left who have lied to, who have lied to and exploited them. He says it's time for them to remember their own humanity, their own dignity, and to fight for the, that return to the American dream that the left would withhold from them. And because he's not too popular in the uh, in, on the left wing side, you see the white liberals, they expect blacks they have a they have a condescending attitude you see they they they're the first ones to cry racism when so, like a governor LePay says something off the wall or what have you but they have a form of racism Malcolm X it was interesting in his I think it was auto his autobiography Malcolm X said that the white white liberals spells negro k n e e g r o w and what he meant by that is that yeah, they may be. They may look out for the blacks, but they have this condescending attitude. You, you have to do. We know what's best for you, and you need to. You need to put us vote for us, support our policies. Because if it wasn't for us white progressive, free-thinking liberals, my goodness, you'd be in a mess. Well, it was interesting that since the Civil War and since since the uh, Reconstruction period till about 1920 and 1925. Black Americans have made enormous progress. And um, there was an essay uh, that Robert Welch wrote called To the Negroes of the South. And, of course, the term Negro was a, was a uh, neutral term. It was back today. It's maybe considered an insult. But in this essay, he pointed out he's actually using um, statistics from the um, uh, Ebony magazine. And this was written in the early 60s. But he mentioned the number of uh, blacks that own their own homes, automobiles, businesses, churches. And he said that if black America was a separate country, they, their standard of living would be better than most white Europeans, the countries and the European countries. And this would be, this would be early 60s. So yes, there's, there's, been a, there's a problem. Racism exists. Blacks have been denied certain things over the years. But in spite of that, they made these incredible, uh, just incredible progress. It was interesting. Uh, the Major League Baseball had an unwritten law: no blacks, no blacks allowed. They did have some uh, black in the early in the 1880s. You know, some of these professional teams had a few blacks here. But then there was uh, Cap Anson of the Chicago Cubs said, "Okay, gentlemen's agreement: we won't have blacks." It wasn't until after World War II when. Um, Branch Rickey of the Brooklyn Dodgers. He didn't have any. Nobody was putting any pressure on him from the NAACP. Or he said, "Hey, there's some great ball players on this Negro League, and if we got a few of these guys signed up, we might be winning some world championships." So we got Jackie Robinson. He got uh, others, and of course, but then it, it took a while, and there was some uh, there was some um, birth pain, so to speak, when this uh, the color bar was broken, but. 
within so many years, it was a non-issue, and it wasn't any. It was just good business. You know, they thought here's some players that could be great players and good players that could get us to the World Series or championship, and before you know it, so the free market in competition that's what caused that. It wasn't federal laws. It wasn't state laws. There were no marches. As far as I know, nobody was demonstrating at baseball games, baseball parks, you know, demanding that league be integrated. It's just one man who was a, a Christian, Branch Rickey, that took the... So that's how you you get ahead through work, and, uh, you know, through, uh, through uh, the free market system. And I believe the free market system punishes racism. And I mean that is that I'll give you an example. If uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a white racist businessman and I have, uh, I don't allow, I don't want black to deal with blacks, well, they're spending money in my business. Or I won't hire a black person who's very competent and could help make me money because of my racism. I'm going to hire a white guy who might be incompetent and keep him over that. No, I don't think so. So uh, I remember doing a radio show in Rhode Island some years ago. And it was a the talk show was very liberal, but I had a black conservative call me, and he asked me what was the answer to Jim Crow. Of course, the Jim Crow laws were really a form of socialism, where the state, state government said that blacks can't ride on buses. Buses are owned; the transportation companies were owned by the by the state or by the local governments, and that was a form of socialism, using the state the power of the government to deny certain people rights and privileges. So the answer would be start your own bus company, and that's what they, you know, the Negro leagues did. The black uh, black business people said, "Hey, let's start our own baseball league." Well, what if they start their own bus company and competed with the municipal bus companies and said, "We don't care who rides; just pay your fare and and behave yourself, and it's not an issue. You can sit anywhere. You can sit in the front." Well, I shouldn't say that Jim Carlaw said that blacks could ride. They had to ride on the back of the bus. That's what I mean. They were able to ride, but on the back of the bus. Uh, this separate but equal uh, thing, Percy versus Ferguson, I think, 1894. Uh, but then there were some businesses, there was uh, bathrooms that were separate, water fountains that were separate. Petty apartheid is what we, they would call it. And uh, I also had a good experience with, um, I visited Motown, the Motown Museum, where the original Motown was founded back in the late 50s, early 60s. And it was a, a young man, borrowed some money, uh, Barry Gordy, uh, and he uh, uh, borrowed some money from his family members. His sister, one of his sisters didn't give him any. She became his accountant. And with a few ye- within a few years, he had this very successful record label. He had singers and musicians touring the country. And when he took a tour of this uh, really house, beautiful place, um, a very historic place too. The studio where where they did the initial recording got a chance to visit that. Anyway, um, he mentioned that there was a hotel in New Orleans that the Motown had a contract, and he explained. This young man explained that people liked to contract with the Motown singers and performers because they were clean cut, they were excellent musicians and singers, and uh, it, it worked out well for them. And they were well people liked like to pay to see them or go hear them. So. Um, he said this particular hotel broke their contract and said, no, nah, most of all our clients are white. We don't want you. And so what did they do? Well, they could have sued. They could have helped demonstrations. They could have marched. They could have done a lot of things. Uh, but they ended up buying the hotel a couple of years later, you see. 
and they made contracts with anyone they chose. They had white singers and performers as well as blacks. And he, the gentleman also told us that um, they would tour on buses, and they were, they were visiting Alabama, I think he said. And the Ku Klux Klan came out and fired at them. He said, that wasn't a problem. We just fired back, and they left us alone. So it just it demonstrates how, how the free market works. Uh, we're almost out of time. We've got a few minutes left. I did want to um, short, uh, address the, the last debate um, between uh, Hillary and Trump. Now, first off, I want to point out that our, our camp constitution does not endorse any candidates. It's also important to point out that uh, the way to resolve our nation's problems isn't going to be in the White House. As much as you, uh, we would like to think that the right person in the White House is going to somehow uh, overturn 100 years of big government and socialism and moral decline and so forth, not going to happen, folks. The best you can hope for is someone who is not as bad as the other person. That's the best. But um, there was an incredible book uh, uh, by uh, the late Phyllis Schlafly called The Conservative Case for Donald Trump, and I'm, I'm uh, almost through with it. It's a hardback book, but it's sort of a small hardback book, a nice little compact. And, and, and Phyllis is the head of the uh, – she passed away. I think the book came out a day after she passed away. Uh, she was a longtime head of founder and head of the Eagle Forum, a wonderful lady. Had the privilege of um, you know, meeting with her on several occasions. Even went sailing with her back uh, to visit a, at a friend's birthday back in 1997. And uh, but it's an interesting book and it's worth looking into. So uh, I would suggest go to the Eagle Forum website to uh, learn more about that. Well, it looks like we are out of time. And I want to thank you for listening. Uh, the show has been Camp Constitution Radio, heard every Monday night, 7.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on WBCQ The Planet. And please don't forget to visit our website, campconstitution.net. <laughs>